Hi, hi, and welcome to another edition of Party Wall Pro, the podcast. Um, I've got Shirley Waldron with me today from uh, Delver Patman Redler. Um, Shirley has um, a bit of a different background, which is quite interesting. Uh, she's a, um, an, an architect um, training and got sucked into the party wall world. So, um, Shirley, welcome. Thanks for, um, thanks for, for, for joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's yeah let's let's get into what what how you ended up there uh, from being a, an architect um, mm-hmm. and a chartered architect and then uh, and then party wall. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I I wanted to do architecture from a very young age. I think in that way I was quite lucky because uh, a lot of my friends didn't know what they wanted to do. A lot of my you know, fellow students, I suppose, didn't know what they wanted to do. Um, and some people just kind of drifted into whichever career um, sort of took them in whichever direction. But I was very lucky, I think, in that I knew I wanted to do architecture from about age sort of 11 or, or so like that. Um, so every decision that I made really took me in that direction, which meant that I, you know, focused on my A-levels, the relevant A-levels, to then go into architecture um, at university. And I was, um, I did, I was at Brighton College for my A-levels, and in Brighton at the local polytechnic, they had the architecture, the School of Architecture, which is now, of course, Brighton University. Um, and I was very lucky to have some very good um, lecturers and tutors there, uh, and it was it was great to do what I wanted to do. I stayed in Brighton to do my um, my year out. I don't know if everyone is aware, but architecture is a seven year course. You have a three year degree course. You do a year in private practice, or even in government practice. You go back to uh, university to do a diploma and then you do a final year in practice and then you can do your part three um, wow. so yeah so I did all my training in Brighton and I did my my year out as well in Brighton um, and it was only when uh, I finally got my diploma that I uh, you know wanted to do something different and I went to live in in Guildford and I worked for an architect's practice in Guildford in fact I worked for all three the time um, Scott Brownrigg, Lewis and Hickey and Norman and Dorban and um, that was very interesting I worked on some MOD projects I worked on for Scott Brownrigg I worked on Terminal 2 Manchester Airport and just at that time there was um, you know CAD was coming through uh, and I was uh, on the, one of the very first training programs in Cambridge, it was a week long. Actually, the training course um, for, uh, and it was done by McDonnell Douglas, who was the airport, uh, uh, air, you know, the aircraft manufacturers, the engineers, um, and they ran this course, which was GDS, and it was actually a very impressive tool, which then subsequently became Micro GDS, and there were various other you know, offshoots to that, um, AutoCAD, etc., and, and it kind of took on a life of its own. But yes, I was one of the very first um, people to train as a as a CAD technician, I suppose, and a qualified architect. Um, and I did that for, 
for years, actually. Um, I had a, a stint in Singapore where I worked for a firm of architects, um, and that was by choice. I decided to leave pretty much just as the recession, the 2008 recession was, sorry, the 19, sorry, go back miles, actually, not 2008. Um, in, that was in 1989, actually, that, the recession then. And I went to live in Singapore for three years, and I did architecture there, and I then um, stopped doing architecture because I was having too much fun, and I decided I was going <laughs> to teach English, and I did that. I taught English to mostly Japanese students, but doing that meant I could... Um, dictate my own terms really and my own calendar you know it kind of freed me up it was I, like, I ran my own business there basically teaching English to mostly Japanese students which was um, quite an eye-opener actually it was um, a great place to live everything worked it was very clean and everything functioned um, and yet it was on in the middle of the most amazing uh, travel opportunities to Indonesia Malaysia um, you know, Thailand, uh, and I visited all those places, and it was great fun. Um, nice. You did uh, that for how long, sorry? Yes, I was there for three years. I, oh, I wish I'd stayed a little bit longer, but um, I, it was, it was slightly, well, it was completely different from England, as you can probably imagine, and the one thing that um, was kind of a bit depressing was that there were no seasons, so it was never, you know, cold and dry or warm and wet. It was always very hot and very wet or very very hot and very very wet and actually <laughs> um it always got light at 7 30 in the morning and dark at 7 30 in the evening and there's no way of uh, you know marking the passage of time with seasons like we have here which would something like this anyway the other thing about Singapore it was very transitional everyone was always just passing through and uh, you would make friends and then they would leave and, and eventually it was time for me to leave I have actually still got some friends in Singapore who I would love to um, to go and visit but um yeah, yeah nice. and then decided <laughs> to come back to enjoy yeah the, I came uh, back weather, I okay. worked for architects um in, uh, I went to work for Scott Browning and Turner, and then there was um, there was a major layoff, and I then came into London, and I worked for EPR Architects, um, Elson Pack and Roberts as they were, um, but they had just you know they shortened their name to EPR, um, and in fact I think there were none of the original partners around at that time, um, and I worked on some interesting projects there. Um, but then um, I met my partner there, uh, and I left very shortly before my child was born, Emma. She's now 19 years old. So really, that was when uh, my life changed from architecture. Uh, and when I came back after having Emma, I started my own business as an architect. Uh, I did a few project management jobs. I worked as a building control officer. I worked for Wandsworth Borough Council because it was something that I really fancied doing. Um, and that was a very interesting part of my career, a very steep learning curve, actually, because, you know, there's a, a huge difference between... Uh, even though I've had a, a fair amount of site experience, to actually um, be the person who makes the decision on things like foundations and uh, whether to sign off a job, uh, you know, you have to make critical... 
uh, inspections for the project and my, my patch was tooting, which was a slightly uh, rough area of London where people were trying to do all sorts of things that they shouldn't have been doing. And um, you, you kind of flew by the seat of your pants a bit. Um, and it was very interesting. But at, then I met um, a gentleman who was working for GIA at the time, a chap called Michael Deason. And he very kindly made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And that was me uh, working in party walls. And it's been that way ever since, really. Um, I carried on with my own practice for a while. But I was soon working full time at GIA, um, and there we go. Yeah. And so it's GIA the culprit then. That's it's. it's GIA are entirely responsible. Yeah, that's how it all started. Yes. <laughs> that must have been. Yeah. yeah, that must have been a funny switch though, because it is were you obviously you had an interest in in party wall and were doing party wall um, before. Um, I've done a very very small amount. That's um, right. Okay. Yeah, hardly anything. Um, but it just shows that, you know, you can pick it up. And yeah. uh, part of a team, I was, you know, on my, I was not on my own to start with. I mean, that would probably have been too risky. But, um, you know, you, you work as a team and eventually you get your own, you, you know, you become the name surveyor and, and you know, that um, confidence, I suppose, in your own abilities and the firm's confidence in your abilities means that you, uh, you kind of are able to take, take that on, that role. Yeah. yeah. And then how, so how did you manage to get from there to now being famous for, for working for Crossrail? Okay, um, infamous perhaps, no, famous. <laughs> All right, I'll have that. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was in 2009, I think I recall. We were just moving down to Brighton. Um, moving back out of London, we decided that we wanted to move to Brighton um, for personal reasons. In fact, my, my daughter was offered a place at Brighton College and it was too good a, an opportunity to turn down. So we made the decision to move back out to Brighton, which we felt was going to be um, you know, an opportunity to grow the business because I still had the architect's practice going. And my, my partner, Rodrigo, he was working for the practice as an architect, you see. So it suited us to um, perhaps to move out to Brighton and to try and grow the practice down there. Um, and I would commute in to, to work um, on my party wall projects, which was didn't quite work out exactly like that. But um, we, you know, we still worked in London, in fact. Most of our business was still in London because I suppose that's where the money was, that's where our clients were. So I commuted in, we bought a house in Brighton that we did a lot of work to, so that's another area where our joint skills as you know, knowledgeable in construction uh, came into, uh, it came, became very useful, I suppose. You know, we bought up a, a house that needed a lot of work doing to it, and we did that work to it, and that's where we live now. Um, so to then, I suppose, become involved in Crossrail, I had a friend who worked for Crossrail. In fact, he was one of the stakeholders in Crossrail. <clears throat> and um, he rang me one day and said, Shirley, um, Crossrail don't really know what their obligations are with regard to party wall matters. So um, that's a nice phone call to get. 
Yeah, no, I, I find it quite uh, astounding, actually, that there was so little internal knowledge about party war matters in Crossrail and that they needed somebody to tell them what they had to do. Um, and that they were under the impression that because the Crossrail Act, in fact, disapplies a lot of legislation, um, including planning uh, and various others, and I'm not in, exactly sure, so I'd rather not say exactly what legislation it, dis, it disapplies, but it did disapply Section 6 of the Party Wall Act um, because of the tunnelling. I mean, when you've got 17 kilometres of tunnelling, um, you, uh, you you have to do something, really, which eliminates um, the need to serve notice on every freeholder, leaseholder within six metres of the tunnels, and replace it with something different. And that's what they did. The, the Crossrail Act replaced it with um, a, a mechanism whereby um, people could have schedules of condition done of their properties and then report if there was any damage and have the damage made, made good. Um, and there were certain properties that were um, protected by um, inspections and reports so that Crossrail could fully understand the risks to those particular properties. But um, the Crossrail Act did not disapply work for Section 2 or Section 1, um, and in fact it didn't disapply Section 3, which is the requirement to serve a notice under Section 2. So for demolition, so whereby Crossrail would compulsory purchase properties, they would then have to go about demolishing them using the mechanisms which the Party Wall Act provided. Um, and there was a, one particular property which was at um, Bond Street, Eastern Ticket Hall, and it was 20 Hanover Square, which had a particular undertaking. Um, and that was um, a signed agreement between the owners of 20 Hanover Square and um, they called it uh, the undertaker. They didn't even know who the undertaker would be. In fact, it was Crossrail. Um, and Crossrail was made up of the Secretary of State for Transport and Transport for London. It was a kind of combined government body. Um, but at that time, when they signed the undertaking, they didn't know who, or when they signed the deed of agreement, they didn't know who was uh, who Crossrail were. They did not even exist as an entity. Um, so Crossrail didn't really know what their obligations were with regard to the Party Wall Act. They were under the misapprehension that people would consent to notices, because why wouldn't they? Um, and, yeah, so, and, and they wanted to start work. So it was all a bit of a, a, a rush, let's say, that, that they needed advice and they needed to know where they stood. So I told them that they needed to appoint a party wall surveyor. And they had a list of um, surveyors uh, it, was a, it was a kind of um, approved list of um, people who they would use, TFL, TFL surveyors, and there was a chap called Matt Walker from AKS Ward who um, was appointed by TFL as party wall surveyor for the that one particular site where they knew they needed to do a huge amount of work because 20 Hanover Square was a grade two star listed property and they knew they wanted to demolish the compulsory purchase 
buildings, 18 and 19 Hanover Square, that they had acquired. Um, and that's how I, I got on board, really, because um, I, I mean, I would happily have stayed working for Crossrail and advised them on their obligations under the Act, but um, this was a slightly different opportunity which came my way, which was to work for um, Matt Walker, AKS Ward, and together we um, served all the notices um, for East and West and also for Fisher Street. There was a, uh, an air shaft and an access shaft that they needed to construct in Fisher Street. So it was those those projects that I got involved in. And just to be just to kind of wind back a bit, the undertaking between Crossrail and GPE was that even though there were even though the act had been disapplied and there were other mechanisms that Crossrail were relying on to protect adjoining owners, the undertaking specifically requested the reapplication of the Party Wall Act to protect twenty Hanover Square. So the owners of 20 Hanover Square, who were great Paul in the state and still are, um, they appreciated that there was really only one um, mechanism by which they were going to be truly protected, and that was the Pastoral Act. Um, so there you go. That's that's really how I got into Crossrail, um, and it was it was extraordinary. I mean, the, you know, the the things that I learnt, the things that I became involved in were amazing and, and very informative and uh, I've written a couple of Crossrail papers for uh, Whispers which is the P&T um, yeah. publication. So, so, sorry, how does that work? So the Crossrail Act <clears throat> yeah. disapplied section 6 but not section 3 Yeah. and this is how they managed to actually get protection under the Party Wall Act. It's was that was that uh, the deficiency of the Crossrail Act, or was that on purpose? On purpose, they they had to disapply Section Six for yeah. the tunneling. Okay, so you understand that. But no, this was a specific deed which Twenty Hanover Square owners had with Crossrail, because when you see the site, when you see the proximity of Twenty Hanover Square to the excavations, the tunnelling, the cross passages, the five-level basement, all the piling and the excavation, and they needed to keep that building working. I mean, it was occupied by leaseholders and tenants, um, and they needed that to, to continue. Um, they had a glass dome over the staircase, which was identified to be a, an at-risk structure. Um, and at one point, there was going to be a frame, a steel frame, inside the main entrance of this listed building to support the dome. Um, and in fact, there were also to protect the party wall, because the party wall was still being used by 20 Hanover Square, um, and it needed to be braced, it needed to be strengthened. And what you had is, um, if I can just... Yeah, if that was the main staircase, mm. um, and these were the cross walls for the staircase, they were not connected to the party wall here. No, yeah. And what happened was they actually inserted these syntec anchors into the wall, into the through the party wall, and into the cross walls to kind of hold them together, so that that was just framed. Um, plus, also the front and rear walls of the 
the high-level section of the building. So you, if you saw it, you'd understand what I meant. Um, so it all had to be kind of connected up and strengthened and then braced with some steel bracing to withstand the wind pressures to which it would now become um, exposed. And uh, that all happened really through the Party Wall Act. We were able to say the internal framework that was which was proposed was actually taken onto the outside um, and done all from the site side mm-hmm. and that meant that the, the building could maintain its operation as a commercial yeah, commercial right. building. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so that's, that's AKS Ward and then after that you, um, yeah. you then Yeah, joined, so um, that was in fact, um, that, that was probably about 10 years worth of, of my career. Um, and when it came to do the tunnelling and the excavations there and the, the grout shafts and the tube amorchette, which was one of the protection mechanisms that the that Crossrail had designed, well, they hadn't designed them, but they implemented them, um, where you have grout shafts to basically um, compensate the settlement of the buildings, um, and that was all very interesting to, to be involved in that. Um, and really, um, I mean, the tunnelling completed a couple of years ago. Um, my involvement in Crossrail has really only just in the last four months ceased to be because I did actually work one day a week for uh, for Crossrail and um, the re- remaining four days a week for Delbert Patman Redler. And I've been at Delbert Patman Redler now for about four years. Yeah, right. mm. so yeah. What's the next big project? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we've got we do have some amazing projects on our books. Um, there's a lot of um, basement excavation out there, which needs careful handling. So mm. definitely, my experience in Crossrail. There's no bigger basements than Crossrail. Um, yeah. Has come in handy. Yeah. So obviously, uh, of course. When I was at GIA, of course, we, we were involved in um, you know two or three storey basements as well going full length and uh, yeah that that sort of thing most a lot of party also those will be familiar with that with that desire of de- uh, building owners to develop full length of their garden down three levels so that they can yeah diving yeah and things like that. so now finally to um to to cover you you obviously have an extensive knowledge of the act now, having done that, yeah. and the Crossrail yeah. Act as well, um, um, there's there's a lot of discussions around. It should be amended. It should be repealed. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff that needs updating in the Act. What's what's your opinion yeah. on that? Um, uh, what's your opinion on the effectiveness of the Act, its failings, and and what kind of amendments would you put push forward if you if you could? Well, I think um, the Act, um, and you need to look at case law, I think, in this situation, because I think since the Act came into being in 1996, um, there was very little case law initially, and recently it does have been ramped. uh, and case law is coming at us now, not monthly perhaps, but certainly, you know, maybe every two months there's a new case law that comes forward. Um, and 
when you look at it, you, you think, uh, you can see that people are becoming more litigious. They don't like being told what to do by party war surveyors, and that's where you get awards being appealed. Um, they don't understand, perhaps, that they need to step back and allow the act to, to do its work so that they can then carry on with their own development. Um, people fall out. Neighbours at war is a, is a major reason for um, so much case law. The conduct of party wall surveyors, thankfully very few, but regrettably some, um, party wall surveyors, particularly when it comes to um, their own enrichment at the expense of uh, developers, is, is quite um, it's unfortunate. Um, and so, you know, you have got an Act of Parliament, which a lot of people have said is, is actually an extremely good mechanism. And I think that there are there's a desire to roll it out on um, particularly boundary determinations. Uh, so you can appoint your own surveyor, people agree. And that's where things... Um, so the mechanisms of the Act are, are very tried and tested and do seem to work if they're allowed to. Um, but we have moots, for example, on issues where um, are all leaseholders entitled to service of notice under section, for works under section 6. Um, and I think that that perhaps does need to be more clearly um, spelled out by the Act. So what's the, um, yeah, exactly. So what's the issue there? Yeah. Right, well... Um, so a lot of people say that if you're a leaseholder, then you're only um, you only own, and it does depend on the terms of the lease. You only own the plaster finish of your flat. Therefore, you don't have any interest in the structure. You're not entitled to receive a Section Six notice. But of course, you just need to look at the Act to see that uh, an owner is in, is uh, they own the space and they're entitled to the. Uh, maintenance of the structural integrity of that space and therefore they're entitled to a notice. I think, in my mind, there's no doubt. Uh, some people say, well, that that flat has no foundation, um, but they are nevertheless above the excavations. So you're excavating below below their, their demise um, and that's, I think, the key to it. Um, there's another area where I think the, the Act could be clearer, and that's when it defines a line of junction, a boundary. We think of it as a line, a line on the ground, perhaps. But I think it would be much clearer and perhaps better to think of it as a two-dimensional plane, um, and the boundary is a two-dimensional plane, albeit an imaginary plane. Um, and... I think that would clear up a lot of things because structures, um, because they have, you know, they have three dimensions, of course, uh, and that second dimension, the height, is is critical. I think to to understanding um, how structures can interrelate on boundaries, um, and on that, I think things like raising on a cantilever uh, that would give you rights of access to do that. It would give you rights of access to, if you had a single-storey um, 
building on a boundary built up to the line of junction, you wanted to add a story, it would give you rights of access to do that. And I don't really see the problem with that. Um, I think there's also perhaps a case to be made for a building owner to be able to demolish a wall on a boundary um, and have rights of access for that, particularly given that when he does that or she does that, uh, you just need to, to say or to wait perhaps a day or two, say there's no structure on the line of junction or on the plane of junction and here's my section one notice and you have rights of access um, for doing any work that you really that you want to do on the on the boundary in that way. So I think to be able to say to a building owner, yes you have rights of access to demolish your boundary wall uh, and then you have rights of access to reconstruct your, your wall anyway, I think that would be very useful. And given that the act is a facilitative one to developers, albeit um, acknowledging, of course, that they have to protect the adjoining owners. That would be a natural progression, I think, for me. Mm. Um, there's also the other issue when people raise a wall on a cantilever and they build just up to the line of junction, what happens then to any uh, structures that may exist on the boundary below that cantilever? And I think that, um, you know, in that particular instance and in other instances, perhaps there could be provisions within the Act to safeguard adjoining owners for the future development of their own land. Uh, a lot of surveyors will say, well, we're not interested in the future development of the uh, development aspirations of the um, adjoining owner. We're only interested in what the building owner wants to do. But I think that's very short-sighted. And these things do come back to bite you, um, particularly for basement excavations. Uh, you know, quite often you find that you're on you know, you're acting for the building owner where you did act for the adjoining owner and oops, all that, yeah. <laughs> you know, that those decisions that you made perhaps um, have come home to roost. Chickens coming home to roost. That's what the act could uh, be redrafted perhaps to prevent chickens coming home to roost and make sure they fly away forever. <laughs> yeah. And any, I think you mentioned any you know, statutory fines on... Not yes, yes, I think that, yeah, there is definitely a case to be made for non-compliance with the Act, so that if you if you decide for whatever reason that you're not going to serve a notice and just go ahead and do the work anyway, there should be, um, yeah, there should be a fine, I think. And equally, mm -hmm. if you decide to just set aside the award and ignore it, uh, you know, carry on working without, you know, that work, without the award uh, in place then I think there should be a fine for that. Uh, I do know of a case though in Brighton where a house actually fell down when the award was ignored. Um, there you go, that can happen. Yeah, because now the only remedy is um, you have to go to court and that's going to cost the adjoining owner money. Uh, yeah, I, I actually don't think that you can avoid, in those very serious situations you can't avoid court. No, of course not. I, and I think that lawyers definitely have a very important role to play in um, in assisting surveyors, in particularly where building owners are determined not to invoke the act. Um, yeah, mm. a letter from a lawyer can do can work magic. No, no. yeah, mm -hmm. and all this. So you think that. Um the uh, RICS 7th edition 
Um, and Scout will will give us will shed some light on on certain things. Um, I I I wanted to um, to yeah try to get someone on the podcast to cover that. Um, who do yes. you think I should? Who do you think I should invite? Who, who would know about the, this? Well, you, yes, you've already um, interviewed Andy Schofield, haven't you? I, I have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stuart Burrell, I know. What about Mark Harrington? You could um, perhaps speak to him. Um, or, or, I mean, Andy was was Andy not involved in the redrafting of those guidance notes? Um, I thought he was because I think, I think yeah, Jack uh, Jack um, Norton is as well. I think yes, exactly. And they're going to be doing uh, they're going to be doing a roadshow, aren't they? Going around the country and telling yeah. people about um, the new guidance note. So, yeah. you know, I think perhaps uh, I'm to follow them. speak to about that. I have to say, regrettably, I was not involved in those discussions. So. Well, next <laughs> uh, time. Eighth edition, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Eighth edition. Shirley, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much for your time. Okay, um, you're welcome. It was, it was um, great. I, um, I'm going to have to cut you short here because otherwise we're going to be a bit too long. Um, yes. And um, yeah, it was it was really good. Anything else you want to add um, from a from a you know technology expert? Yeah, you should really try Party Walk Pro. I think. Yeah. And, and and give me some feedback. Okay. Um, okay. Alistair back then actually had a look at the mockups. Um, yes. I, no. I I, I I've got no doubt that it's it's a great assistance to a lot of people. Um, the one thing I suppose is that, that I would slightly hesitate over is that everything has to be bespoke, really, doesn't it? You know, you have to, um, you know, you can't really use proformers or templates. No, no, but we do actually, that's the thing, we do offer customization of everything. Yeah, so. uh, exactly. And I think, of course, proformers and templates are a very good place to start, but you have to uh, know exactly what you're doing, I think. Um, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. But um, okay. Well, Shirley, thank you very okay. much. And All um, right. we'll uh, we'll speak again. I'm sure. Well, yes, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Philippe. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye then. Bye.